Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. That's when you stop running from success to success and you start on the the transcendental walk to actually experience your life moment to moment. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast. In this episode, I talk to prolific author and social scientist Arthur Brooks about finding meaning in the second curve of life. According to Arthur, the world and our biology urge us to relentlessly chase after the next win. This flawed formula for satisfaction ultimately leaves us unfulfilled. To find true purpose, Arthur argues we must break our addiction to success and confront life's hard truths. In this episode, we also touch on the topics of motivation, relationships, aging, transcendence, and love. I always enjoy talking to Arthur Brooks, and I think you will enjoy this conversation as well. So without further ado, I bring you Arthur Brooks. Arthur, how's it going, man? Doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing really good. They tore up. They tore up my 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 studio here, so it looks like I'm inside a North Korean prison. But aside from that, all is well. <laughs> I was gonna say, are you in a North Korea prison? <laughs> I was. It's like sometimes it's it's. I I call it you know my winter break. That's what yeah. I like. <laughs> okay. Well, it's okay. How's it going? How are you? You know, I'm good. I'm good. Loved your book. It was so. Did you? Thanks. It's so necessary for so many people, especially right now during COVID. Did you, did, when you started writing that book, was there the pandemic? No, yeah. no, no. I actually started thinking about the research project eight years ago. Mm. And then I started the write up on the book about two and a half years ago, right mm. around the time I was leaving AEI. And of course I had no idea that the pandemic was going to happen. But then what mm. happened was that the, when the pandemic hit, I had time to just to finish it up. Mm. And the, the first part is finishing up. The second part is cutting it back. You know, yeah. so it's a it's a manageable book. So it's seventy thousand words as opposed to one hundred fifty thousand words, because yeah. you know, for this kind of book, you have to have people who don't necessarily love reading non you know serious nonfiction. You want them to be able to read it and digest it and think about it. So it has to be a little bit shorter. But but this was a pandemic project, but it predated that in a big way, but mostly because of my own life. You know, I know, I know. Well, tell me a little and the listeners a little bit about the uh, plane ride that kind of changed your life pretty poignant. Yeah. So 
this ha- I didn't realize we were recording. We're, we started. <laughs> this is, we started. We started. <laughs> this, this podcast is so. This story, the story for me, started about eight years ago, and I was still the president of a think tank in Washington D.C. I was president of a uh, think tank started in 1938. It's one of the most prominent think tanks in the country. And what a privilege to run it, to be sure. But mm. wow, what a hamster wheel of a job. Mm. I mean, it was, I was had to raise $50 million a year. I was giving 175 speeches a year. So my job was wow. like running for the Senate and never getting elected. Basically, it was wow. I mean, I was on the airplane all the time. And it was kind of one adventure and corporate thrill and political, you know, crisis after another it was extremely exciting but it was it was success to success to success kind of i was on what we you and i as social scientists call the hedonic treadmill mm. you know which is what social scientists think of it's what we call the hamster wheel right it's like you're running 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 you never and i was kind of getting a little bit worried i have to say i was in my late 40s at that point um mm. i had looked back on my bucket list which i had been putting together now i realize that was a mistake but at the time, it seemed like a good thing to do. And the bucket list that I put together at 40, I realized I'd hit everything on it, but I wasn't very happy. I wasn't mm. very satisfied. And more than that, I was really, really worried because I knew I wouldn't be able to keep this party going. And once the party stopped, where was I going to be? You know, what was going to be of my life, you know? And so yeah. I was kind of in a panic. And, and this was at this point, this inflecting experience happened to me. I was on an airplane at night coming from L.A. to, to Dulles, to Washington, Dulles. And it was, it was nighttime, about 11 o'clock at night and it was dark and I couldn't see, but I could hear people around me. And I heard a couple behind me having a conversation and I wasn't eavesdropping, but it was, you'll see, you know, why I was listening very carefully. And I could tell it was a man and a woman and I could tell that they were elderly by the sound of their voices. And I just sort of imagined that this was a married couple because of the intimacy of their conversation. Mm. I couldn't quite make out the man's words, but I heard his wife answer him. Oh, don't say it would be better if you were dead. Mm. Like, Whoa. And then I hear mumble, 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 mumble. And, he, and she says, it's not true that nobody appreciates you or cares about you anymore. It's not true that you're nobody. And it goes on like this for 20 minutes. And, and I'm starting to get this picture of the guy in my head. He's probably somebody really disappointed with his life who, who was unable to, to achieve the things that he wanted to achieve. And we land at Dulles Airport half an hour, an hour later. And the lights go on. Everybody stands up. And I, I'm kind of curious. You know, I'm a social scientist. I want to put a face to the behavior that... And it, I look at him and I'm expecting to see, you know, this kind of a sort of a disconsolate old man. It was one of the most famous men in the world. Mm. Somebody that everybody listening to us knows. And, you know, discretion prevents me from, from you know, saying who it is. It would be improper. I'll take it to my grave. But mm. avoided to have a big impact on me. Because as we were going up the aisle, people were recognizing him. And, and the pilot, as we were leaving the plane, stopped him. He was right behind me and said, sir, you've been my hero since I was a little boy. <laughs> and I, I whip around and look at him at that moment, and he's beaming with pride, Scott. And I thought yeah. to myself, so which is it? So which is it, man? Is which is yeah. it? This one or that one? Yeah. And it's, yeah. It's a half hour apart. And I thought to myself, okay, now, number one, the idea that if you do enough, if you succeed enough, if you strive enough, if you are triumphant enough in this life, you can pocket, you can bank those successes and go on to be satisfied permanently – that's wrong. I mean, that's mm. evolutionarily wrong. There's lots of reasons why that's wrong. But mm. this is proof that actually it's not just wrong. It's the opposite of the truth. Mm. See, this guy, his successes were in the rearview mirror, and that made it all the worse. Mm. So this is, and I'm, you know, I'm feeling 
intellectually stimulated by this, but more than anything else, I'm being selfish at this point. So I'm thinking, so what about me? What about me? I'm no hero on the plane. I'm not some, you know, big famous celebrity, mm. but I've tried to do a lot with my life. I mean, I've really worked hard and I want to just, I want to suck every, every drop of juice out of this life to do everything that I can, but I know the party's going to stop. And then what am I going to be telling Esther, my long suffering wife on a plane when I'm, 80 something years old that I wish I were dead because mm. all of the successes and victories in the rear view mirror, or, or maybe should I get in front of the fact that things are going to change and some things are going to decline and I better start looking for what success means in the second half of life right now. And I got started on a research project and I'm telling you, it was hard because for a social scientist for like you and me, it's like taking out your own appendix. If you're a surgeon, right? <laughs> just like analyzing your own life. Yeah. And so I didn't tell anybody about it for a really, really long time, but I think I cracked the code. I wow. think I actually figured it out. I think I figured out the second half problem on the basis of brain science and social science and, and, and putting it together with what the philosophers and, and great wisdom literatures and spiritual leaders have said. And, um, and I have a blueprint for the rest of my life that I'm offering up in this book to everybody else as well. Yeah, the book reads really naturally and organically, and it flows. Like every single sentence flows into the next sentence, and every chapter flows into the next chapter. I'm sure that you, I'm sure the first draft wasn't like that. No, no one's first draft is like that. It never but, is. But when it's a yeah. personal, you know how it is when you're yeah. working on a really personal I project. Do. I do. This is a yeah. diary. I mean, this yeah. is, and, and again, you know, I've, we've all written books. I mean, <sighs> and this is different. I mean, this one was one I didn't know if I was going to publish this because, you know, there's a lot of personal stuff in there, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's, you know, even your press stuff, it's not like it's that bad. It's not like you're uh, <laughs> telling us any really dark <laughs> truths about yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you don't have to worry about about that. Yeah. It could have been a lot worse. <laughs> yeah, that'll, that'll, be for the, that'll be for the memoir. You're You're fine. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't write anything. I didn't want my kids to read. That's for exactly. Sure. <laughs> exactly. You're good. You're good. You say, "quote Was there any way to get off the hamster wheel of success and accept inevitable professional decline with grace? Maybe even turn it into opportunity." You know, the book goes much deeper than just talking about turning into opportunity. It's almost like it's uh, there's a very existential, spiritual part that it, it it kind of shifts into as you as you read on, you know, and it gets to a point which is very consistent with with you <laughs> yeah, and your values and what I know about you and and you know is this shift it sort of starts shifting into the higher realm of love, into the higher mm -hmm. realm of, of finding meaning in the moments of your life. Well, you know, Scott, that this is you're a Maslovian. Uh, anybody who listens to, you know, everybody, by the way, should be subscribed and listening to the psychology podcast, literally the best podcast of this, in, in this, in this whole subject matter area. I learned as much from you as from anything else that I read professionally, uh, because Thank of your you. guests and also just because of what you bring to this. And, and so, Thank and you. you're, you're a, a follower of Abraham Maslow in, in yeah. many ways. I mean, you refer to him constantly and Abraham Maslow would say, look, we start with needs and we have fears and life has mm -hmm. exigencies and working our way through these needs and fears and these pressures can lead you up this pyramid, as it were, toward what's at the top, which is other focusedness and transcendence. Mm. And so this is the ultimate fruit of the adventure of life, where that adventure has got all these potholes and difficulties and suffering and challenges in it. And that's the reward if we're going to deal with this. We're going to be fully alive and we're going to get our way through life with full of purpose and meaning. At the end of the day, 
the reward is the transcendence. And so yes. that's one of the things that, you know, that's, that's one of the, that's kind of one of the punchlines of, you know, what it means to live fully in the second half of life. Hey everyone, I'm excited to announce that the eight week online transcend course is back. Become certified in learning the latest science of human potential and learn how to live a more fulfilling, meaningful, creative, and self-actualized life. The course starts on March 13th and will include more than 10 hours of recorded lectures, four live group Q&A sessions with me, four small group sessions with our world-class faculty, a plethora of resources and articles to support your learning, and an exclusive workbook of growth challenges that will help you overcome your deepest fears and grow as a whole person. There are even some personalized self-actualization coaching spots with me available as an add-on. Save your spot today and get 50% off the normal price by going to transcendcourse.com. Sign up for the early bird today and get 50% off at transcendcourse.com. We have so much fun in this course, and I look forward to welcoming you to be a part of the Transcender community. Okay, now back to the show. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, because I had such a deep resonance to especially those parts of your book, I clearly just jumped right there. Like I skipped like all of the, you know, <laughs> get over the addiction of success and all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I jumped all the way into walking into transcendence. But I, I just resonated so much with it. You say, quote, fulfillment cannot come when the present moment is little more than a struggle to bear in order to attain the future. Because that future is destined to become nothing more than the struggle of a new present and the glorious end state never arrives. The focus must be on the walk that is life with its string of present moments. Those are your words. Yeah. <laughs> that's as yeah, good, I know. That's as good <laughs> as like any Dalai Lama. Like that. that's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. I'm hoping yeah. that people will refer to, to me at some point as his holiness. By the way, the Dalai Lama blurbed the book, which I, I thought saw that. That was, it was the most, the calmest blurb ever. He and I have been working together very closely for the past 10 years, and he's a, a mentor and, and teacher, and I love him very, very much. And he agreed to, you know, put a, an endorsement on the front of the book, which basically said, Arthur Brooks has written a book Helps that people. can help people as they age. It's like, that is the calmest yeah. blurb ever. That's a, that's a, <laughs> Worthy of the the of the greatest Tibetan Buddhist. Yeah, but that was beautiful. It, you know, what you wrote back to you for a second. You. Let's not let's not uh, diminish <laughs> what you did. You have this section called "Walking into Transcendence." Yeah. I was like, yes, 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 yeah. brother. But why is it so? Maybe maybe that's a good place to start. Now let's back all the way up. Let's back yeah. up. Why is it so hard for so many of us, um, especially when our forties, fifties? I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. So I really, your book came at the right mm. time in my life as well. Why is it so hard for us? to walk into transcendence in that kind of second half of our, our life. Part of the reason is because we've been taught that the harder we struggle, the more that we strive, the faster we run, the more we're going to do, the better it's going to be and the more satisfied we'll ultimately become. Mm. And a lot of that is a bill of goods. Now it's not a bill of goods. That's just brought to us by, you know, the outside world or capitalism or Madison Avenue, the entertainment industry It's brought to us by our evolutionary biology. You know, there is a phenomenon that you and I talk about as as so-called professionals in the field called homeostasis. Mm -hmm. Homeostasis is the phenomenon that all biological processes and emotional processes want to return to their baseline. And so when you're when your pulse is above average, it want it has a tendency to go back to its baseline so you don't die and you'll be ready for the next set of circumstances mm -hmm. to 
for, for to, to have to exert energy, for example. And when you're emotionally out of the baseline because you're you're thrilled about some achievement or you're bummed out about some slight or misfortune, that you're going to go back to your baseline as well. So you'll be ready for the next set of circumstances. Now, the, the result of that is that you can't attain and keep satisfaction for very long. But you're, but but Mother Nature lies to you. Your dreams are liars when they say that if you just get that that hundred thousandth unique download of the podcast, when you finally <laughs> get great. tenure, when you finally get that big grant, when you finally graduate from the Harvard Business School, whatever your thing is, Mother Nature is saying then you'll be happy, then you'll be satisfied. The man on the plane should have been over the moon because he had done ten times more than I ever will, and 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 most of us all put together will. And yet he wasn't because Mother Nature sent him back to his baseline and there was nothing behind that. There was no achievement behind that at a particular time. And that's the conundrum that we're talking about. So when you're always racing, 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 you're on the treadmill of, of the next thing, the next thing, which, by the way, is classic addictive behavior. You know, what we're talking about is, you know, and you've cool. talked about this so much in your show, too, is about how, how all addictive mechanisms are implicate dope, the dopaminergic pathways in the brain that it, it basically it's hit the lever, get the hit, hit the lever, get the hit again yeah. and again and again and again. The same thing is true for success. This is this is why so many people are success addicts. They got to get the next hit. It's like those primate cocaine experiments from the 50s where they self-administer cocaine and and do nothing else but sit in front and hit the lever until they they stop eating drinking sleeping and die this is how success addicts actually work and how people actually work i want the next satisfaction the next satisfaction and life tells you life lies that you do it do it do it do it and finally you're going to get the bliss and then you have to break through to the truth you have to, 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 to come face to face with the fact that that is actually not true. And you must be in charge. You must be the master of your own emotional fate under those circumstances. And that's when you stop running from success to success mm. and you start on the, the transcendental walk to actually experience your life moment to moment. It's a different way of being. I think that for those who come from the other way of being that you described, it can actually be boring. You know, at yeah. first, at first, for sure, it's very hard. It feels unnatural, yeah, boring and unnatural. It's correct. It's a correct. it's a funny thing. It's a you know. It's, so if you say to somebody, for example, most young people, you know, my students, your students, all of our students, you'll say, "Do you like Instagram?" They'll be like, "No." Do you like Twitter? It's like they're like, "No." I hate everybody says they I hate, hate Twitter, but but is stuck on Twitter, right? Yeah. So you say, okay, I'll tell you what. Next time you're on the train, um, you're going to be looking at your phone. You're going to be looking at your Twitter feed. Okay. Turn it off, put it down, put your hands in your lap and look out the window. And they're going to be crawling out of their skin doing something that they objectively like better because the natural thing feels like the unnatural thing. And this is just when, when the brain is used to the constant stimulus and the constant stimulus has really had the first half of your life and the, the formula for success, you're stuck on it. You're going to have a, You have to make a change. And that's what this book is all about is how to get to that second curve. But once you get on that second curve, but once you practice for it, it doesn't matter if you're. 25 or 35, you start practicing for it, and, and there's a lot of good that's in your future. Yeah, for sure. And and most of your book is uh, teaching those skills to help yeah. people get get on that second curve. Um, I want to talk about something you call the principle of psychoprofessional gravitation. That's kind of nerdy. That was I liked it, but I, I got to say, that's kind of nerdy. If you look at the uh, footnotes, by the way, Scott, there's a mathematical proof of the concept. 
Oh, I didn't see that actually. I will have I got to through my editor. That. I can't believe it. Yeah. I will have, I'm still I will a social scientist that. to the end. I will love that. So <laughs> this principle of psychoprofessional gravitation is the idea that the agony of decline is direct by the way, I love that expression, the agony of decline. The yeah. idea that the agony of decline is directly related to prestige previously achieved and to one's emotional attachment to that prestige. I bolded emotional attachment to that prestige because I wanted to talk to you about that and I have an idea. I wanted to run yep. it by you. I think we make a lot of uh, noise, big hype in the psychological literature and the distinction between intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. And yep. it's never really sit right with me. It's never sit right with me. And I've been formulating a new theory of what I call value motivation, which I think is mm. better than intrinsic motivation. And this relates to your sentence. So I wanted to kind of just talk about it, nerd out about it, see what you thought about it. It just seems like we make a lot about that distinction and intrinsic motivation being defined as, are you enjoying your activity? Are you enjoying it? Are you enjoying it? Are you feeling joy when you engage in it? But I think that feeling joy when you engage in it is overrated. And it just seems to me like um, what you're kind of getting at is something deeper than do you have to always intrinsically enjoy what you're doing? Um, value motivation, I think, is more sustainable. And, and it's, it allows you to be motivated by your values, motivated by your long-term uh, plans, desires, how you want to see the world encounter, even if you're not feeling it day in and day out. Even if you go months where you're like intrinsically like, uh, I don't feel joy every time I engage in this, but I really do want this to be, I know this will be really meaningful when it's accomplished. But anyway, so I'm just going to leave that there and just... Yeah, just I like it. I like it an awful lot because that's really consistent with this one thing that I find in my research and that I found particularly over the course of writing this book, which is that that if you're motivated by the what of your life, mm. you know, the, the success, the money, the power, the pleasure, the fame, then you're going to be running on the hedonic treadmill, as we call it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and then you'll never actually be satisfied and you'll be stuck. You'll be stuck in exactly the ways that we're talking about. But if you go from the what to the why, as Simon Sinek always talks about, mm -hmm. which is so important, then you'll be talking about your values. And it's not always fun. On the contrary, this is one of the things that we that, you know, I teach a class in happiness at, at the Harvard Business School. And, mm -hmm. and the first day we define happiness. I say, think of happiness as having is like food. It's made up of macronutrients. It's not a thing. It's not just food. It's actually proteins, carbohydrates and fats. Well, mm. happiness is actually three macronutrients, which is, which is enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose. And the mm. most paradoxical of those is purpose because purpose requires values. Purpose requires sacrifice. Mm. Purpose requires pain. And so paradoxically, happiness requires unhappiness to <laughs> get it because of that. And, and, that and, and it can be intensely, intensely meaningful to do things that are difficult but only if you're pursuing your why, or as you would point out, that you're yeah. you're serving your values. Yeah, and and just the, even your framing of that, the emotional attachment to the prestige, is very interesting, right? So a lot of us probably are emotionally attached to our prestige in a way that we're not consciously aware of, and it's driving us. It's driving our motivations. So I think it's when people read your book, it might be a big dose of reality for a lot of people, and they might have a lot of aha moments where they're like, "Wow, I've, that's what I've been driven by." You know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And they can, uh, what I'm hoping is that when people read it, they're, you know, depending on what point that they are in their life. I mean, I'm 57 mm -hmm. years old. And so if people who are my age, a lot are going to be perplexed by, you know, number one, it's, uh, it's, <clears throat> why is it that it looks like my, even though I'm, I'm in many ways, the prime of my life, <laughs> but my skills might be waning in a particular area. And I'm not talking about my ability to do a deadlift. 
or, you know, right. with the bench press. Cause you could still do that. About, yeah. I mean, well, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a uh, it, weirdly, I'm in better physical shape than I was when I was 37, <laughs> but you know, there are certain things that I'm much, much worse at and some things that I'm much, mm. much better at. And it's mm. the same for almost everybody. So for example, my ability to solve puzzles quickly has mm. declined, even though I've had no cognitive decline. So it seems, and my ability to tell stories and to teach has increased dramatically. And this mm. is a, you know, this is hard for people to deal with because what makes them successful, what jumps them on the hedonic treadmill, what makes you good at what you're good at. Everybody mm -hmm. listening to us, by the way, mm -hmm. watching or listening to us is, is almost everybody's going to be in the same boat of why would you listen to the psychology podcast? And the answer is because you want to be a better version of you. This mm. is in a very real way, self-improvement podcast, but based on truth and intellect, not just shooting from the hip. That's why this is a valuable podcast. Okay. So that means that everybody who's listening to this is, mm. is hugely invested in ideas mm. to add value to themselves. Mm. People who have this in common, they find that what they're really good at is, is using ideas to create value. This is what everybody, all of us in this community we have is using ideas to create value. Well, you find that your speed and and uh, your innovative capacity for doing so declines in your 30s and 40s. So the first thing in this puzzle is why is that? And then the second thing is what are you better at that you can jump to? And that's the big mystery that I solve in this book to my own satisfaction. I hope to the satisfaction of readers as well is you get much slower at innovation and you get much better at at, at instruction. You get much better at explaining ideas of mixing big ideas together into a coherent story and, and, and telling other people about them in ways that they can use it. So you got to go from software pioneer to college professor or some equivalent of that. And this is a really interesting thing. So you early in your career, a good example of this. I am. You have always done a lot of really pathfinding, high level technical research. You know, read your journal articles. This stuff is at the forefront of what psychologists do. You have to be able to understand. You read my journal articles? Uh, look, we're in one. We're in a pretty small community here. Wow! <laughs> I didn't know you read and, my nerdy and, journal articles. And well, I mean, I got nerdy journal articles too. Is how I cut my I teeth. Know. You know, back know. in in uh, all know. these. And I go back to my journal articles from when I first finished my PhD, and I can't literally even understand my own math. I was using. <laughs> early artificial mean. intelligence, genetic algorithms to model public finance mechanisms. Wow. And, you know, I was publishing in these theory journals and all that. I can't understand my own math now, but I can write a book that takes relatively complex research and right. explains it of a whole bunch of different brilliant people and explains it in a way that people can understand it. This is exactly what you're doing in your podcast as well. And that's the first kind that innovative capacity is called fluid intelligence, which you have in huge amounts when you're young. And you need to jump from that curve to crystallized intelligence, which is wisdom, teaching ability, ability to explain things. To, to and, and, and if you're a CEO, to, to use other people's brilliance to lift them up and put them together in really great teams. Mm -hmm. If you're a podcaster, to take all the best ideas that are out there in the psychology world and bring them together into one place and help people explain them. That's crystallized intelligence. Mm -hmm. And so the purpose of the book is how can I, how can all of us make the investments to jump from fluid intelligence to crystallized intelligence when it's time, how to know when it's time and then how to make the jump. And the rest of the book is what are the techniques to actually get you there? And so you're happier when you get there. Yeah. I love that. Did I ever send you that book chapter I wrote with Marty Seligman on why we age? I, oh yeah, I do. I know that chapter. Yeah, yeah, I know that chapter that you and Marty Seligman wrote in when you were still yeah. at Penn, I think, right? Yeah. 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 When I was still at Imagination Institute, we 
tried to review the whole literature and said, well, what do you still got when you, you know, yeah. when you're older? And it's very much, in, that review is very much in line with a lot of what you're oh, saying. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that was the mm. stuff about intelligences from Raymond Cattell mm. from the 60s and 70s, where he was saying, look, it's just extraordinary how much quicker. And I remember seeing this with my own kids when my 11 year old son was started beating me in checkers. And, and he was just much faster at seeing things in sort of hyperdimensional space. And it's not like he's Albert Einstein. I mean, he grew up to be a, a forward deployed combat Marine, which is what he does right now, which I'm glad he's got these fluid intelligence capabilities, you know, keeping himself and us safe. But it, it was amazing to me that I saw that I was sort of weirdly slowing down in, in my 40s. But at the same time, I was a much better teacher year after year after year, much better writer year after mm -hmm. year as things went by for exactly the reasons that you and Marty figured out. And that's, that's what I talk about in the book, but most importantly, how to, how to get there and how yeah. not to be afraid to get there. Not be afraid to get there. And, and, you know, your book is called from strength to strength. So in one sense, you're saying from fluid intelligence to crystallized intelligence, but in another sense, you're right. saying from success um, uh, addiction to, mm -hmm. to what, what would you say? To freedom. To, oh. to freedom. The freedom, you know, human freedom is so elusive wow. and the chains that we put on ourselves because of the, I mean, it's, it's, it's the funniest thing that people often think, you know, you go back to, I'm, I'm older than you. So I remember when I was a kid, a really, really, really little kid, my dad watching some news report about Woodstock, maybe I was four or five years old mm -hmm. and some hippies on TV going, if it feels good, man, do it. And my dad's saying, that's just all wrong. Right. And then now I, you know, I listen to my millennial students and friends and all that who, who basically are saying if it feels bad it's bad you got to avoid it and you have mm -hmm. to treat it for example both are wrong yeah. because mother nature lies about happiness mother nature doesn't care if we're happy the truth of the matter is that mother nature will drive us to run from success to success so that we're optimal breeding machines so we're as attractive as possible we have as much resources as possible but we do not select we do not neither sex select nor naturally select on happiness. Happy. This is the reason as, as evolved beings, as, as spiritual beings, that we have an opportunity and indeed a responsibility to, to, to learn about the secrets to happiness, success, and share it with other people. Because mm. it goes against, it goes against human tendency. It really does. I feel like I'm so aligned with everything you're saying. I'm so aligned. Mm. And you're a conservative. <laughs> <laughs> Politic it's no it's no secret that politically you're a conservative. How can it be that er I'm and I'm politically I'm progressive, but no, I'm not far left. I'm more like, you know, classical liberal sort of kind of guy. But how can it be that every time we talk, I'm like a hundred percent on board with like everything you say? Would we will we ever get to a point where I disagree with something with you? Like, would it have to get into the political domain for me to disagree with you? Like, I just feel so aligned with you. <laughs> well, to, to begin with, we have the same values, which is, is the humanistic yeah. values. And that's yeah. what really matters. I mean, you called yourself a classically liberal political yeah. liberal. Yeah. I'm a classically liberal political conservative. And the classical wow. liberal part is these enlightenment values. So when we think yeah. about it, one of the reasons that you and I like each other and get along is because mm -hmm. we both believe in the in the power of, of the competition of ideas to make things better. I mean, when you think about it, it's so interesting. Until the enlightenment, power was everything. Coercion mm -hmm. was everything. If there's a disagreement, coercion is the only way to sort it out. But what the most, as far as I'm concerned, the most important thing that the Enlightenment pointed out to people and, and demonstrated to people is that persuasion is way more powerful than coercion mm -hmm. because we can disagree on something and, and through the disagreement be both better. 
you know, the whole idea that we, I mean, we love competition in, in politics is called democracy in mm-hmm. economics is called the free enterprise system, which when properly bounded requires that we, that we cooperate with each other mm-hmm. in ways that we would never have had to in the past. And in the competition of ideas, it's so critical. You know, I, I am super grateful not to be surrounded by people who agree with me. Yeah. You know, I come from a family of, of political progressives. I learned so much from them. They're so smart. They're so, and, and furthermore, I, I don't, I have to I have to recognize and I, I truly believe that I'm wrong on tons of stuff. I just don't know what yet. Mm. And and so I need you to disagree with me on policy ideas, to disagree on on politics per se. So where would we find disagreements? Basically is in differing approaches to mm. serve our common values. And that's the man, that's the basis of getting better at everything and being friends. Agreed, agreed. But I keep reading I've read I've read a lot of even your political uh, stuff and mm-hmm. You know, you wrote this beautiful book on like being a bleeding heart conservative. <laughs> that was so good. That was so good. And right now, what I think we have in American politics is not classical liberal anything. Mm. I think that we have, whereas you and I would contrast as classically liberal liberals and conservatives, mm. what we have right now is is between the left and right that are ascendant in political power, at least in Washington D.C. Not really in the states, by the way. There's so much more good going on in cities and states. I live in Massachusetts. We've got this great governor of the bluest state who is a Republican governor and who basically just wants to get stuff done. It's, mm. it's, so it's a really good example of that. But mm. at the federal level, you have classically illiberal conservatives and liberals. Both, and so yeah. that's, the, that's the competition of, you know, that's with great. polarization and with populism and with coercion and with hatred and with bitterness. And I reject all of that. I don't want yeah. either one of those brands. I'm, I, I find myself equally alienated from yeah. the illiberal right as from the illiberal left because you know, in, in my America, the America that I, I, I love, it's an it's a nation of people that are basically just kind of, of ambitious riffraff that don't fall prey to the true big lie, which is the person in the house next to you who votes for the other party is the enemy of America. You know, it's astonishing to me that more than half of Americans, more than half of Americans today on both the Democratic and Republican side, it's the biggest threat to our country is people who don't vote like them. Wow. That is a huge lie. And it's a huge wow. mistake, and we might as well just, you know, bind it up with a bow and send it as a Christmas present to the you know, enemies of a free society. Mm. You know, we need more. I need some more Scott Barry Kaufman's telling me I'm completely crazy about capitalism mm. if we're going to make any progress in this country. And then, but because why? Because we have differing approaches on how to serve the poor. You know, that, that that's what we need. Love to go down that rabbit hole, but our listeners yeah. like, can we get back to the how I can? <laughs> I this is the psychology podcast, not the economics podcast. <laughs> there's so much, there's so much depth to you, so much I, I love talking to you about. But I think that what we just talked about is very segwayable. Is that a word? Segwayable? It, it is. Um, I think I think oh, no, segwayable. I mean, it's yeah, sure. It's an aphorism. I mean, it's a neologism, but I like it. To higher forms of spiritual love, kinds you talk about in love your enemies. Right. And which there's some, you know, there, there's some carryover to this book right. um, when you talk about it. Right. How is that and cultivating more of that in this kind of second, uh, you know, what, what's the word to use? Second, what wave of your life? Second, the second, the success curve, the second curve, the, the second, second curve, curve of your life. On, um, yeah, and the one how, that doesn't curve down that you can maintain that success right. for the absolute rest of your life. Yeah. The central ingredient to it's interesting. There's a, there's a study that you're really well aware of. And some of your listeners might've heard of as well called the Harvard Study of Adult Development, which is an 80-year longitudinal study launched in the late 30s and early 40s. Mm. It was looking at at graduates of, or people that were graduating from Harvard College. 
and it was going to follow them all the way through their life. It was matched up with another study of people who wasn't just, you know, Harvard men, people who hadn't gone to college of different backgrounds. And so it's demographically representative. And it looks over 80 years at what they did to wind up happy when they were old. Now, this is like a crystal ball. And I talk about it a lot in the book. And I teach about it a lot in my, my, my class at, at, at Harvard about uh, on the subject. What can you do when you're 25? And this is the, really the big promise of the book mm. is, is basically a lot of people say, I, I would be great if I were happy when I'm 75, but I don't know. I just have to wait and see when I get there. No, you don't have to wait and see. You don't have to leave it up to chance. There are some things that will be worse and better, to be sure, but there's a lot you can do when you're 25 and 35 and even 65 such that you will be happier than you would have been when you're 75, guaranteed. And a lot of that comes out in this Harvard grant study. And there's all kinds of things in there to do. But the number one big takeaway is that happiness is love, full stop. That's the punchline of this study. If you don't have loving relationships, you're not going to be happy as you get older, which means that you have to make all kinds of investments in love. And that means love for friends, love for your partner, love for your family, love for the divine. You need loving relationships at a very, very meaningful level. Love is expressed in your work. You know, you, you and I talk about your work. Why are you doing this thing that you're doing? It's because you want to serve. You want to help other people live. This is an act of, you know, the psychology podcast I happen to know is an act of love. That's hugely meaningful and everybody deserves that. The problem is that the world's not telling you to do that. The world is telling you that basically here's the world's formula. Scott, here's the world's formula. Use people, love things, worship yourself. That's the world's formula for happiness. And it's completely dead wrong. The right formula is use things, love people, worship the divine. That's it. I love that. Those are the seven words to remember. At the end of the book. Yeah, I just spooked myself. That's the end of the book. That's the, I was going to lead up to that. <laughs> <laughs> I had a whole plan where what I was going to – my next question was going to be leading – I had a whole plan to lead up to Sorry, that. Sorry, Scott. So it's, it okay. it's okay. No, it's okay. But um, what I was going to ask you to kind of segue into that was you say that love is – we just talked about love, but that you can level up from yeah. love. The next level is worship is yeah. what you say. And I wanted to unpack that a little bit. What is worship? Could How is – like when I think of that, I think of it as a negative thing, actually, because I think it's like it's like too much self-sacrifice, you know. Well, to to worship is is a is a true adoration, but this can't come from from something where in which you have a peer relationship. Hmm. The biggest one of the biggest problems is interesting, you know. If in in my own in my own spiritual journey, I, I dedicate this book to my guru, and hmm. and I I learned my guru when I was studying in southern India with a a, a famous very famous yogi named Sri Nochur Venkatraman. And mm -hmm. in a, I was in a little town, a little house, and he was asking me questions. He was interviewing me, not like this. He was interviewing me just in, 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 to, be, to be able to help me more. And he asked me about my wife. And, and I said, I said, she leads me on paths of righteousness. Mm. I mean, she reads me the Holy Scriptures. She helps me to pray. Mm. And, uh, and then he said, does she love you the most? And I said, no, no, she loves God the most. And wow. she's told me that. And he said, she is your guru. <laughs> and, and this is, was incredibly meaningful, me, meaningful to me because I realized that the secret, one of the, the real secrets to success in my marriage is that my wife worships, not me. And, and a lot of, wow. there's a lot of pressure on spouses to, for the spouse to be the be all and end all and to love the person beyond all others to the point of adoration that could be considered worship. And it is so wow. helpful to me that I know that 
with my dying breath, I will be, my eyes will be on my beloved, my yeah. wife. Yeah. But that I will be in the hands of God and that she will be fine because she's in the hands of God as well. That's worship. And that is an, that's an un, that's a, that's a disordered relationship for another person. Mm. Yeah. Th- that is really profound for you to have the, to have no ego to be like, okay with that, that like, Oh, you, you feeling God more than me? Like you're okay with it. <laughs> it's like, no, I, I, I you. love it. Says something it just about makes you. Me so happy. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, no, I don't know. It's funny because I don't, at the beginning of our, of our marriage, uh, I mean, this is an evolution as we've gotten older as well. And as we've had our children, as our children have grown, and it's really helpful. It's, it's, it's interesting because we were explaining this to my oldest son is engaged and we're explaining this to my oldest son and his fiance. And I wasn't quite getting through, mm. right? It sounds almost as, as sort of a compromise or as if we don't love each other enough, but you need, you need the adoration, the worship to go to an entity that's higher than a higher person. power, higher power. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And David Foster Wallace, by the way, who wrote famously that everybody worships something. Mm. Everybody worships something. Now, more dangerous than worshiping your partner, of course, is self-worship. And that's the world that we're being yes. pushed into. You know, if you're posting yes. 75 selfies of yourself on Instagram every day, then you're you're practicing a form of really metastatically dangerous self-worship. So there's a lot of things that are tied up in this. But love, which is defined by Aristotle and later St. Thomas Aquinas as to will the good of the other. Nothing about feelings. It's a commitment. It's a decision to love. That's why you can love your enemies, right? That's why loving your enemies is actually possible because it's the way that you choose to behave as opposed to the feeling that's written on your heart at any particular moment. So love, 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 love in the appropriate way for people all around you, including your enemies, including your, your friends, your family, love in the right way. That is the secret to, to, to aging well, ultimately. And that's an empirical phenomenon. That's what we find in the 82 year longitudinal study that people who have the most love have the most happiness. Absolutely. This dovetails so, so much with my interest in Maslow's notion of being love, be love, which is a higher form of love than he calls it unneeding love versus you needing love comes from a place of deficiency motivation. Right. Whereas, That's atelic versus telic love in the Aristotelian framework, right? Nice, nice. All the yeah. stuff can be mapped onto each other for sure. And he well, he and, and Maslow drew a lot from Buddhism and from like Tai Chi and uh, as well and uh and uh and Zen ideas. So yeah, the, the a lot of this stuff is is deeply connected. So what does it mean to start your vanaprastha? <laughs> retire to the forest, literally retiring yeah. to the forest. But what does that so, mean? <laughs> Vanaprastha is actually it's a it's a word in in Sanskrit that actually comes from two words, van and prasta, mean to retiring and then into the forest. That's why vanaprastha right. it's a is a, a larger concept. Is mm-hmm. literally means to retire into the forest or to withdraw into the forest. Mm-hmm. But actually, it's it's metaphorical and it comes from a, a, a ancient Vedic philosophic notion. This is probably at least a 4,000 year old idea of a good life, which should be modeled in four quarters. Now, mm. according to the ancient notion is, you know, Hindu wisdom that a good life, a perfect life, a balanced life is a hundred years long and it has mm. four 25 year quarters. Of course, you know, mm. as they say in finance, your results may vary mm. um, given the fact that most people don't live to hundred, but the whole point is you need to pass through phases. The first is Brahmacharya, which is, the student phase, the phase mm-hmm. of learning. The second is grihasta, which is the householder phase. Build your family, work in your job, become successful, earn money, 
The third is called vanaprastha, where you start to work backward, where you start to, to retire away from the earthly rewards of money, power, pleasure, fame, prestige, whatever, where you're thinking much, much more about the transcendental benefits that actually come from the love relationships in your life, such that you can do the spiritual work that's required to get into the fourth quarter, which is called sannyasa. Sannyasa is a period of real enlightenment. And in, and in ancient times, many Hindu men would actually leave their families at age 75 and go spend the rest of their lives at the feet of their yogi masters in the Himalayas. I mean, no joke. This would be, but you, you can't do that without 25 years of elite training. So what this means for us today is basically, look, when you're at a certain phase in your life, notwithstanding the change in your skills, you need to start spending time thinking about the unique transcendental benefits that you can get from a a contemplative life as you get older and you need to do the work first. You can't show up at the Olympics without training. You need elite training to be able at the end of your life to attain some amount of enlightenment. And that means taking your spiritual life seriously, taking your love yeah. relationship seriously, building the, the root system that actually is your family and friendships that you're going to need. Thinking, reading, contemplating, starting a practice of meditation and prayer. And I go through all of the things that actually go into, not just in the ancient Hindu thinking, but in our modern American thinking as well, that makes perfect sense to all of us who are real moderns. You you are so good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Scott. <laughs> you're like so, like you're such like a good principled person. Like, do you have any naughty side of you like that makes you more human? <laughs> Like, like, <laughs> I mean, like, I have, we don't need to talk about. It. We don't need to talk about. It. Is it just tell me? That I mean, I got all my side. share of dark thoughts. I mean, it's, <laughs> okay, it's you know, this is the huge thing. But I'm at war with myself. You know, this yeah. is the key thing. And yeah. and this was the most liberating thing was recognizing that the day that you stop being at war with yourself is the day yes. you start to lose. Yeah, that that it's perfectly okay to to have a dark side. What's not okay is to accept the dark side. You know, the, the, in point of fact, that the war that you have against your own dark side, this is one of the great adventures, the great joys of life. That difficulty is part of what it means to be fully alive. It's interesting. St. Irenaeus, this fourth century Catholic saint, his most famous saying is that the glory of God is a person fully alive. And what he meant by fully alive was not like, you know, a healthy blood pressure and, you know, no, no. But even by fully alive is actually living and and engaging in life under your own terms. Mm. And this is not libertinism or my own terms or if it feels good, do it. Because that's not living according to your own terms. That's mm. your lizard brain telling you how to live and living according to your urges and basis desires. No, no, no. Who is the person that you want to be? Who's the Scott Barry Kaufman of your dreams and mm. living according to that? And I guarantee you it's not Scott with a boat. I guarantee you it's not Scott with a Ferrari. It's Scott who is morally elevated and transcendentally aware and lifting other people up and glorifying the divine in your particular way. And then and then and then shooting at that day after day after day, shooting at that, shooting at that. That's to be fully alive. Well, I love that so much, but I will say, so I don't come across a hypocrite, I hope to take up sailing lessons this year. It's on my <laughs> uh, my New Year's There's list. There's nothing wrong with sailing. <laughs> so I, I wouldn't mind maybe a boat someday, but it's not the thing that drives me. Every exactly. Day, that's for exactly. Sure. Right. And I don't mean to be some sort of ascetic. You know, that would right. come across as hypocritical. It's not like I'm walking some itinerant anonymous path. I'm a professor at Harvard <laughs> University. I mean, I'm, right. I live a, a privileged existence to be sure, but you got to hold it lightly is mm. the bottom line. I mean, you yeah. have this fabulously 
important and and impactful and popular podcast, but you have to hold it lightly. Yeah. Because if it becomes if this success of this podcast is the essence of Scottness, uh, yeah. trouble awaits. Oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Well, I struggle uh sometimes knowing what is my essence. You know, and that, but that's all. <laughs> I'll take it to a whole different conversation. So, but I, I struggle. I mean, I, and I wonder, do other people struggle with that who are successful? Like, am I the only one? You know, I struggle sometimes to know, like, who am I? You know, who is the, the real me? And, and, you know, it's, it's tough because, um, I don't, I, I, I make the scientific case there's no such thing as the real you. There are many, many, many sides of all of us. There is the sides of us that make us feel most creative, alive, as you said. Uh, most creative, creatively self-actualized. That mm-hmm. side of myself, I know when I'm engaging in that side of myself, I feel more alive. Mm-hmm. That I know. That I know. But the question of who is the real me is is almost feels like a fool's errand, you know. Well, it's part of it is part of the. It's an interesting thing. I mean, this is what this is what philosophers, particularly 18, 19th and 20th century philosophers, have engaged with. So the concept has always been there is a true you, and you're responsible to find it, serve it. More 20th century philosophy from the nihilist to the existentialist would say there is no true you. You have to invent it, right? Mm-hmm. And and yeah. it's oh, yeah. it's almost neither here nor there. Whether it's it existence precedes essence or essence precedes right. existence, right? One way or the other, you have a responsibility to serve the highest version of yourself under yeah. the circumstances. And that's this unbelievable life adventure that that the the great news is we get a bunch of years to do it if we so choose. But if we want to stay on the hamster wheel, stay on Mm. the hedonic treadmill and freak out when when some of our abilities start to wane and just fight like crazy and try to hide everything just with all of our might, we're wasting this opportunity to just start walking the transcendental walk into the most meaningful, service oriented um, and and ultimately uh, uh, cosmically impactful part of our lives. You just made me think of something that's that's really profound, by, by the way. Um, you just made me think that this idea of the real you, I, I think maybe what you're saying to a certain extent is we have to really accept that that can change throughout our lives. You know, there can be like a period from like, because I look at myself, some of the videos I was looking on YouTube at some of the things I did back, like when I first started giving talks, and I was like, who the hell? <laughs> That, who's that guy? But that was the real me then. And maybe it, you're, what you're saying is kind of accepting, or at least that was the best real version of me then. But the, I think the best version of me now is is, is someone different, uh, a different path, you know, um, not completely different, <laughs> not like going from, you know, crazy, but um, but a different kind of, you know, I'm not as interested in giving all these talks all the time and, you know, being on right. video and, uh, you know, you know, um, certain things but you know now i want to teach more i want to like i want to like i want to help people and mentor them more i'm i have much more of a drive to mentor and to help the future generation right that, but, which um, is by the yeah. way that's the core competency of crystallized intelligence mm. which is that that second curve yeah. remember the first curve is fluid intelligence there you which go. is analytic capacity the ability to do a purely original work to do it fast to do it well and the second half is crystallized intelligence, which is the ability to take big ideas, to synthesize them, and to teach them to others in a coherent way. So what you're doing is you're recognizing and increasing your crystallized intelligence, and you're being drawn to try to develop it. I mean, this and this is what people need to do. The problem is when they're a success addict and they're stuck on their first curve, they, that's what got me here. That's the one I'm going to stay on forever, and I'll be damned if I'm going to actually let this thing leave me behind. And then all it is is like rage, rage against the dying of the light, which is right, right. an exercise in futility, but also the recipe for misery. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't want to rage against the dying. I want to like meditate on the dying. I want to like see the beauty in it. I want to. I want to feel wonder. I don't want to rage. <laughs> yeah, totally, yeah. but you know, it's different strokes, and it's hard. And this is part of the problem that a lot of people who have who have a pretty. Un- I mean, you have a deeply examined life. Mm. I mean, I've heard maybe think too much. <laughs> well, I don't. I mean, every a lot of people think that they overthink, but intellectuals in particular mm. think deeply, 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 deeply. And 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 again, wh- one of the things that people don't realize about us social scientists is that we don't do research; we do me search. Mm. You look at things that are you're interested in in your own life and behavior. If you're somebody who's studying, you know, insects or something, you're not studying humans. But if you're a human scientist, it's because there's something about this thing in the mirror that yeah. fascinates you and the problems that you want to solve. So the fact that you're doing this and, and jumping in with both feet is really, really encouraging because this means that you've got a leg up and, and there's a lot that you can teach to people about how they can make this shift in their own lives as well. Absolutely. But I feel like we need to like collaborate on something together someday. Yeah. And you're doing actually, you're doing comedian. You're doing, you're doing comedy classes, aren't you? I am. Is that something you want to collaborate with me on? Is that what you're saying? I would love to learn more. And part of it is just, I've actually done a little bit of research about happiness and humor, Mm. which is, you know, Jennifer Ocker and company and, and, and who is up at Stanford has done some of that work. That's really, really interesting. But I did a column. I quoted them in the column, but the the thing that I found about humor and happiness, which is quite interesting, is that there are two kinds of ways to have a sense of humor. One is to appreciate funny things. And the other thing is to say or do funny things. And what you find is that happiness is is, is correlated, is associated with the first, but not the second. Mm. So people who love funny things tend to be really, really happy. And people who are, are really, really funny tend to be a little less happy than the average. Isn't that interesting? So interesting. Explains, you know, a lot about comedians and <laughs> <in> their <laughs> lives. <laughs> you know, I'm a weird person because I, I'm very much in this spiritual path and uh, I, I resonate so deeply with what you're saying, but I also am very cheeky. I also don't like to take myself that seriously. Maybe that's not at odds, right? But but I feel like you often don't see that, right? Like people who are like so like uh, who they're like oh, I am enlightened. They don't tend to have a great sense of humor. Although the Dalai Lama is a good exception. He's a, he's quite 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 funny. He's hilarious. He's but you know absolutely what I mean? hilarious. Yeah. He's wonderful, yeah. right? He's wonderful yeah. in that way. I mean, he, the things that he'll do, um, it's it's interesting. You know, it, it, I have every kind of experience with him that shows mm-hmm. that. That that spirituality and earnestness are actually antagonistic to each other in a lot. Of I ways. love that. I love that. And, and so he'll say, you know, for example, one time uh, yeah. he he we were doing a thing in in here in the states, and after we'd been working together for you know days and days and days, it was very intense. And afterward, he said, you know, every time I see you, I want to give you something. I want to give you a gift. And I said, well, thank you. He said, but I don't own anything. And so he starts rooting around in his little satchel, this little purse that he carries, and he pulls out a ballpoint pen, a ballpoint pen, and he gives me this ballpoint pen. And he says, I want you to have this. No, it was actually kind of nice. It was a Mont Blanc. I mean, it's like no joke. But yeah. but it was, he said, I've been carrying this for 20 years and I want you to have it. And for oh. me, it's like the holy grail. It's like, and, and so I, you have I carry one with you? Uh, I do. It's it's actually it's not in this room, but I, I still do. And the the and, and so I was carrying it around in my briefcase for like six months. And I was with a Catholic bishop. Bishop Robert Barron in, in Los Angeles. And we were having lunch at a subway or someplace with paper napkins. Mm. And I said something, he said, Oh, I want to write that down for a sermon. He says, mm. you got a pen. And I look at my briefcase and there's my Dalai Lama pen. Right. And wow. so I pull it out and I say, and I say, you know, your eminence, this was a pen given to me by the Dalai Lama because I was kind of boasting. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm sort of ashamed to say this, to admit this Scott, but 
I said, and he says, oh, I love the Dalai Lama. He's been so helpful to me in my pastoral work. And I heard the Dalai Lama in my ear going, you know what you have to do. You gave him the pen? I said, I said, I'd like you to have that pen. So I couldn't. I said, trust me, I have to. So he takes the pen, right? He takes the pen. And then three months later, I was back in Dharamsala, which is where his holiness lives in the Himalayan foothills and where his monastery is. And I tell the Dalai Lama the story and he, and he laughs like crazy. And he gives me another pen. <laughs> so you have the second pen with you somewhere. <laughs> I got the second pen. And he says, you know, wow. I'm looking forward to hearing who you give this one to. But it's like this all the time. It's sort of this lighthearted, easy come, easy go. You know, he loves, he has his cat. He loves his cat. He's crazy mm. about his cat. Mm. And, and I, one time I've asked him, we were just having lunch. And I said, your holiness, what's your cat's name? And he looks at me like I asked him, like, what's your left shoe's name? Because in, in, you know, Tibetans wouldn't name an animal. And he says, no name, cat. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is amazing inside baseball right now. <laughs> I love this. By the way, Arthur, you know, I'm a big fan of the Dalai Lama. And, uh, He's a wonderful know, man. He's a know, beautiful, beautiful man. No, you didn't get my and, joke. You know, they always say, don't joke. meet your heroes. Don't meet your heroes because they turn out to have feet of clay. Yeah. You know, to quote the prophet Daniel. And um, he doesn't have feet of clay. He's exactly the same guy. He's a beautiful, beautiful human being who has love for everybody and wants to share it. Absolutely. I mean, and I absolutely do. That is true what I said, but you didn't catch my joke because I was. Oh, like, tell I mean, me again. Would you? Oh, wait a second. You made the pizza joke, didn't you? No, no, no. You know, um, you told me, what did that guy say to you? And all that's all he had to say to you to get a free pen? <laughs> Oh, that's right, but I don't have it. You have a second one. <laughs> you have a I second, one. second one. It'll be in the mail, Scott. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, no, I'm, I, you just did. You didn't play along with this. It's because I missed it, but now I got it. Okay, I, okay. Now I got it. I got it. I thought you were making that famous Dalai Lama joke, which is, you know, how what did the Dalai Lama say to the pizza delivery guy? No. What? What is Make it? me one with everything. Oh yeah, well, I do love that joke. I do love that one. I know that's not as funny as his jokes. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, perhaps my my favorite chapter in your book, although they're all good, um, perhaps my favorite one is the one cast into the falling tide and this idea of liminality. Can you kind of tell our listeners a little bit about what liminality is? Yeah, so we've been discussing this crystallized and fluid intelligence, these curves that that define what you're naturally good at, <clears throat> what's naturally easy for you. Mm. Um, that those curves, fluid intelligence, for example, goes up through your teens and 20s, and it goes down through your 30s and 40s. And the second curve comes up through your 30s and 40s and 50s and stays high in your 60s and 70s. The trouble is that you don't just naturally fall from one onto the other. You have to make a decision because you have to do different things to get from your fluid to your crystallized intelligence curve. And that means taking a big risk. It means jumping from one set of activities, from one set of skills, from one set of interests to one set of emphases in your life. And that transition is really, really scary. Now, most people don't make it because number one, they're super good at what they were doing. So they rage to keep at it Mm. or they're too afraid or they don't believe there's a second success curve lurking behind the first one, or they're afraid that they won't succeed or they're just too attached to the first set, the first Mm -hmm. curve. But if you do jump, it turns out that there's this magic that happens between the curves too, when you're making a shift. And I didn't know, remember I did this research for myself. And at the time I was a CEO of this big think tank in Washington, DC. And because of that, I retired. Mm. I, I, I quit my job because I wanted to get on my second curve. And I knew I had the data, unambiguous data, that you have to make a decision to do it. 
Mm. You have to start doing different things as by the way, you have done in your career over the past three years mm. that you've actually made transitions. You've made changes yeah, true. and you're doing more crystallized intelligence. Now, some people can do it in very intuitively like you, but most of us, we don't have the gifts. And so we actually have to make this conscious decision. And so I, I quit my job and it was unbelievably scary and uncomfortable. Mm. I walked away from more money than I was ever going to make more mm. a position. I was like, I was like the captain of a battleship. In, in public policy, I was in the, the, the exciting struggles in Washington, D.C., which I didn't always find pleasant, to be honest, but at least they were always exciting. And, you know, I, I walked away from these relationships with corporate CEOs and leaders and policy leaders, and I was promptly forgotten once I no longer had the position. Mm-hmm. It's not like people were calling me up to see how I was doing. And I got to Massachusetts. You know, I took up a college teaching job mm-hmm. and it was weird. It was like I couldn't even I was trying to sign a check. Mm. after I got to Massachusetts and I couldn't remember my signature. It was mm. really, really weird because I was in this, what they call a liminal state, which is from one thing to another, a transition. Bruce Feiler has written that, that famous oh, yeah. book, Life is in the Transitions, which is he's a really great. nice book. Yeah. yeah, he really is. And he's a very, he's a very deep thinker. <clears throat> and what you find is that people go through these regularly, but this is the biggie from the fluid to the crystallized intelligence curve. But once you do it, once you jump, your life just becomes so crazy rich with opportunity because of that insecurity per se, there's a, a word in Tibetan that's bardo, B-A-R-D-O. Mm. And what it means is the, the decision to leap at the end of your life, basically to the next life. And, but it requires that you make a positive decision to actually make that jump, which is the ultimate kind of liminality, literally between lives, this, this subtle wind that the Tibetans talk about from life to life in reincarnation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we have this aversion of that, of that in, in our own lives. So, People are listening to us. It's like, even if they're not between fluid and crystallized intelligence, maybe you're 25 years old deciding whether or not to quit this good job and go to graduate school or, or, you know, go to something that's high paying to something that's low paying or moving away from New York because you're sick of it and you want to go back to Wichita where you grew up, even though that's not a cool thing to do. You know, what you need to do is you, you need to, to consider that that jump per se is going to be really, really hard. And there's a deep sacredness in that difficulty and a profound kind of fertility and the things that it's going to it's going to make happen in your life you're going to have unusual clarity simply yeah. because of the among other things because of the insecurity that you're facing absolutely I want to double click on a distinction that you make in your book passingly. You kind of, it's kind of like throwaway, but I think it was so profound and could probably be a book in itself. And that's the distinction between being happy in life versus feeling the need to feel special. It was like a throw, it was like one line, and then you're like, well, maybe you, you can actually care about being happy as opposed to being special. But I was like, that's a book in itself. You know, like that's wow. Wow. I mean, think about how many people right now with social media kind of pressures feel the need to justify their existence by being special as much as possible. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look how many followers I have. Look how many much money I have, et cetera. So those two things are very, very different, right? Yeah, for sure. And there's this desire to be special, to stand out for the crowd. And once again, there's a lot of, you know, if we were, if one of us was an evolutionary biologist, I mean, you do a lot of evolutionary psychology. So, you know, mm-hmm. and and, uh, and you talk about this an awful lot that you have, a t- you want to stand out from the crowd because it makes yeah. you, <clears throat> it makes you better in the passing on your genes department in the yes. pool of people. Yes. If you stand out, 
you do better. I mean, obviously, if you stand out as a criminal or a kook, it, it might not help you that very much. You want to stand out in a positive way. So there's this imperative that people have to stand out all the time. And they can become captured by their, their desire to become special at the expense of actually being happy. And so I was interviewing a lady for this book, um, this woman who's an incredibly successful Wall Street financier. I mean, just killing it. And she's in this period where she feels her skills a little bit in decline. Her decision-making abilities are not quite as sharp as they used to be. She can tell that younger people in the firm who used to idolize her, like, mm, she's missing a step there. But at the same time, she also is just very, very reluctant to make any changes. You know, her marriage is not that great. Her relationship with her kids is not that great. She probably drinks a little bit too much. Her health is not as good as it used to be. And it's obvious. It's like step back from the rat race and get on point in your relationships with your children and your and your husband uh, and your relationship with alcohol, with, you know, your faith journey, whatever it happens to be. Why don't you do that? And yes. she says, because because in my work, I'm really, really special. And all those things you talked about, anybody can do them. And yes. I think I just prefer to be special than happy. And I thought about it. I thought, well, you know, that's the success addicts anthem. You know, when I talk to people who everybody yeah, knows, people who have had alcohol use disorder have been addicted to drugs and they, you know, they know that sooner or later they're going to have to get on the wagon or they're going to die sooner or later, but they don't because, and they know that they'll be happier if they're not addicted or they're not actively addicted, but they prefer to be high than happy. Preferring to be special than happy is just the success addict's version of preferring to be high. Yes. And your book is all about a deeper form of happiness. For sure. Than but many people ever thought they had before. Arthur, thanks so much for chatting with me today and helping people overcome the striver's curse and <laughs> step into a deeper form of happiness. Um, loved your book. It came to me at just the right time in my life, and I'm sure for a lot of our listeners, it'll come to them at the right time of their lives. Thank you, Scott. Yeah. Thank you for the work that you're doing to lift people up and bring people together. It's, it's, I have to say that you know, you're, every week, uh, you help me. And I, I deeply appreciate that. And I'm not alone. There's a, a many, many other thousands of people that feel the same way. So on behalf of all of us, thank you. Thank you, Arthur. That means the world to me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well. So you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.